Hello everyone, welcome to In Conversation with Lisa Burke. Thank you for joining us once more. And today I have three guests, two in the studio with me and one on the line. And we're going to discuss the roots of addiction. Now, after listening to my podcasts on eating disorders, Esme Schengepen got in touch to explain that addiction is a problem we don't discuss enough in Luxembourg. It's a present and real problem and there are not enough solutions within this country. People suffering from a multitude of addictions have to source or are sent for help outside of Luxembourg. So, my guests in the studio are Esme Chengapen, a relational transactional analysis psychotherapist and EMDR practitioner. She specialises in childhood trauma and grief and has worked in the corporate world for 25 years before making the transition herself to become a therapist. Also joining me in the studio, Sophie Seal is a Jungian psychoanalyst and has worked in Luxembourg for more than 25 years. She specialises in early childhood trauma and has extensive experience with the addictive tendencies traumatised adults fall back upon. Drew Puxty, joining us on the line, studied neuropsychology and worked at the U Centre near Maastricht, a centre where English-speaking patients resident in Luxembourg are sent for intensive therapy treatment for addiction issues, amongst others. Although Drew is not based in Luxembourg, he knows a lot about extreme addiction cases from this country. So welcome to you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for reaching out, Esme. What was it that made you reach out to me in the first place? Why is this an issue? I think it's an issue because we don't talk about it in a compassionate and learned way. There's a lot of shame around addiction. I just wanted to bring in the conversation because basically we can all be addicted to anything that helps us escape from emotional pain, shame, anxiety, and it's to normalize the conversations. And this is why I reached out, because I felt we need more conversations. And it's important to have the conversations on what are sometimes quieter subjects. Yes. To set the scene, Drew, could you tell us what addiction means? Yeah, I guess to extend on the point of Esme, we can all be addicted. It's kind of the main message that I'd like to drum home today. And that's based upon my background as a neuroscientist, which is a modern scientific discipline. Basically, what addiction really is, is a combination of a genetic vulnerability, poor psychological development, as well as social environment that leads to a state within the brain where our internal drive to seek reinforcement, such as sex, food and water, has been hijacked by artificial reinforcers, which are substances or often behaviors as well, that kind of alters the motivation centers within the brain, but also the parts of the brain that form habits and make them in overdrive. So we hyper learn the importance of a substance and that often replaces our natural reinforcers, so food and sex. Mm -hmm. And Sophie, you often deal with childhood trauma and you will see these people coming to you often. So when it comes to that unhealed trauma, what is it that leads to addiction and, as you've written to me, addiction to control? Right. I think the main point I was trying to put across is that underneath all addictive behavior, for me, what I have seen in my practice is that there is an addiction to control. And for me, that stems from unhealed psychological trauma. And the basic idea is that 
when someone undergoes trauma, then there's some kind of vicious cycle that is started afterwards, whereby after trauma, we have some emotions that are extremely disturbing, and we can't digest them right away. You probably have heard of PTSD, post-traumatic shock disorder. Well, what that is, is we have flashbacks. We have little shreds of what happened during the trauma. And that is meant for us to digest the experience, the traumatic experience. And when that is not treated, well, those flashbacks, they will come and they will haunt you. And as they haunt you, they need to be repressed because they are too uncomfortable. And we know that the more we repress emotions, well, the more we're going to have to cover those emotions with anxiety. And so anxiety is a big blanket that comes over those unwanted emotions. And once we have a lot of anxiety, we have anxiety disorder. What is that anxiety disorder? It's basically being most of the time into some kind of a panic state, being very vulnerable to experiencing emotions, and also on a chronic level, having to do something to release that anxiety. This necessity to constantly release anxiety very directly links to addictive behavior. So you're going to say, why? (laughs) Well, because it's the easiest way And the surest way of releasing the inner sense of emptiness that the chronic anxiety creates and the easiest way of cutting down the feeling of panic inside. And I'm going to turn to Drew to ask again, why on a scientific level, why is it the easiest path to do that for our brains? The important point that people tend to overlook is that the brain is, to use the term, a selfish organ. And what I mean by that is that it uses the most glucose out of any organ in the body. So it uses glucose for energy to power it, but it doesn't store glucose. And therefore, the brain is a fascinating organ and it makes decisions based upon energy efficiency. And in addiction or at late stage of an addiction, when we've practiced these addictive behaviors many times, the neural circuits that govern that behavior require less energy. Similar to riding a bike, when I was a child and I learned to ride a bike, I had a helmet on, some crash pads, and maybe somebody there to help me. And that used a lot of my energy. But now when I ride a bike, I can ride it without thinking, without a lot of cognitive control, because it's a well-learned skill. And I would use the same metaphor about late stage of an addiction, which is essentially a well-learned skill that becomes harder to inhibit and also harder to implement alternatives the longer that an addiction goes on. So to go back to Esme's point that If we look at kind of perspectives on addiction, if we work from the view that we can all become addicted, whether we are born with a genetic predisposition or an unstable social environment uh, in relation to what Sophie mentioned, then we open the door for more people to seek treatment for addiction rather than the older traditional models, which kind of said that people that suffered with addiction were bad people, were condemnable or were very weak, which is, of course, not correct. Mm -hmm. And that's something very much worth underlining because that's where the shame comes in. And Esme, just coming back to you on that point of shame linked to addiction, I'd like you to expand upon that. And also I'd like to bring in the idea of highly sensitive people because 
We all face various levels of trauma in our lives. We are lucky not to be living in a war zone, for instance, but nonetheless, we all have different levels of trauma that we all experience, even within the same family, but not everybody's internal experience of it will be the same. And yes, that's correct. Because of one biological vulnerability is what Elaine Aaron identifies as a highly sensitive person. And it means that we have an uncommonly sensitive nervous system. This occurs in 15 to 20% of the population. Which is quite high. It is quite high, but still not as recognised. And this is when we notice everything. Our brains work overtime to process it all. It's a great thing. It's not, I've got this vulnerability, so I'll become an addict. But it depends on where you are and where you live. It's a great thing. You can be very creative, emotionally aware, but it can be very exhausting. So often highly sensitive people turn to addictions because then it drums down, it, it turns down this awful noise and this cruelty. And often I, I give this test to my clients when they come in, they think that it's a weakness, but it isn't. I remind them that Mahatma Gandhi, while well, we think that he was a highly sensitive person, he was in that group, but he adapted his lifestyle. And he was in a country, in a cultural context that where he could show this vulnerability, this sensitivity as well, because that allowed him to connect and see the injustices. So... That's one biological vulnerability. But we talked about the shame of, of things because often we want to appear to be the most successful. We want to belong to a group. So shame is something, but toxic shame, because there's a healthy shame that allows us to have a moral conscience. Whereas the toxic shame is where it's a combination of secrecy, the silence and judgment. And it's really fertile ground for secret addictions to start and to secretly continue. And that's where we self-medicate our pain and we hide about our addictions and how they would describe the hiding of, of everything that we do in addictions. Mm -hmm. Andrew, well, on that point, I'm going to turn to you because moving on from the huge spectrum of how addiction plays out on the spectrum of anxieties, anxiety disorders, to perhaps when we hear the word addiction, we think about substance or alcohol abuse. You see people who have been sent to you, and when you were working at the youth centre as well in Maastricht, it's a very famous centre to help people from addictions at a high level of addiction. Tell us what you've observed coming from Luxembourg, and if there's anything people living in Luxembourg can do or should do to help these people. And of course, I realise by the time they get to you, at least they faced up to that addiction, and so many people are not even at that stage yet. The important thing is that in my observations from doing a psychoeducation group on the subject of addiction, people's perspective on addiction and as a result of on themselves is often the biggest barrier for them to seek treatment. And coming from Luxembourg, what people tell me, they kind of say, you're more abnormal if you don't drink or have a substance problem. So there's a kind of a social acceptance within Luxembourg. But the main thing for me, which I feel impedes people, is the black and white thinking with regards to addiction. Often people tend to have a view that it's an on or off switch, that you're either born with or you are not. That isn't accurate in terms of how addiction develops. And to go back to what I said earlier, that everybody, myself included, can develop an addiction. 
that's because it's a stage. You're not born a late-stage addict or somebody who suffers from late-stage addiction. It's something that develops over time. We would say start as a social user, which would be occasional, and then maybe move to a more habitual use, which at this point it could be functional to relieve stress or to, to escape certain emotions that are difficult. And then, of course, it transits to a problematic state, which we have maybe problems within our daily functioning and use becomes necessary. And then, of course, it develops to the late stage where we maybe experience withdrawal symptoms and also problems within our environment as a result of using or not using in terms of the withdrawal symptoms. Why were people sent to you at the youth centre? They were sent to me because they were 99% of the time comorbid disorders. So it would be a depression or anxiety or a trauma or a personality disorder, which they were using the addiction in order to survive. So the question I always used to frame to my clients, which is maybe different from normal addiction treatment. So I would start off with, how does the substance help you? Rather than saying, you should stop using this substance. That tells them that they're a bad person for using the substance. Whereas what I tended to see was uh, a really vulnerable person who is trying to survive life and deal with the problems they have underneath. And it was by going to somewhere like the youth center where they can work on everything at the same time that they became motivated to look at what was underneath the addiction, which is where the real issue lies. And the addiction is just the, the outer layer that keeps them warm when they need it. It's like the plaster, the coping mechanism. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Esme? Well, I was just thinking about this because what Drew offered them is the opposite end of toxic shame. He offered a place where they could be vulnerable and authentic and they could be safe and be in a loving environment. Mm-hmm. And this is where we connect And it's important to realize that often we live in that shame and that's where the addiction, it starts, but it continues. It's like this catch-22, we're kind of caught in it. It is very often recognizing what's happening inside. But one has to be able to recognize it. And thinking back to what you spoke about, Sophie, earlier, the childhood traumas that Mm. you will observe in all of your practices, that's where it might start. But a poor child won't know what's right and wrong. They're learning as they grow. And it would be very hard for them to recognize what's happening to their neural network. So how do you even begin to firstly recognize that in yourself, if you are that child who becomes an adult? Uh, what stage do you hope to find it to remedy this situation? And how can an outside person, whether that be a friend of a family's or a parent in the school or a teacher, how can you recognize that in a child? You will often, as a parent or a teacher, recognize it. Not as a parent, okay? Um, A teacher, um, a parent, hopefully. But from what I'm going to say later, you'll understand why I hesitate to say parent. But you might not know how to tackle it because it is not easy to tackle. The problem is that most of the psychological trauma we're talking about right now is not traumas that come from the outside. Most of them are trauma that comes from the inside of the family. This is what we call dysfunctional families. And I need to define what a dysfunctional family is. Well, basically, a dysfunctional family is a family in which either one parent or two parents are antisocial. So what is an antisocial person? Well, basically, an antisocial person is a person who abuses. And the abuse can go from something which 
might be even accepted in families, like putting a child down, then it can grow into something more perverse, like manipulations. And um, it can go all the way to physical and sexual abuse. So there's a whole range of behavior which will not help the child to grow up to find that life is easy, that life is pleasurable, and that leads to a feeling that in life there's always abuse. Okay, and this is um, very sad, but I get people in my practice coming to me having no idea what normal life is because they have lived in survival, which has been induced into them. Their brains are formatted to think that in interpersonal relationship, only hardship can become. Well, I need to dig into what you mean, and I'm opening this to anybody, really, any of you to answer. Uh, when you said one parent is antisocial, my understanding of antisocial is not exactly what you've described. I would like to just develop that idea further. Let's do it both ways. What does a parent do to avoid being a dysfunctional family? Or what does a parent do to become one in real examples? To avoid it... Um If you are antisocial, really antisocial, if you're really a nasty person, you will not want to change it. Uh, so let's start by that. Otherwise, probably you yourself have had some kind of childhood trauma and you then belong to two categories. Either you're going to want to do something about it, about yourself, so that then it's not repercurred on to the children or you won't. And then if you won't recognize that there's a part of you that has been so hurt, you need in turn to either return the aggression against yourself or turn the aggression outward onto your children, you will not stop doing it. And that's why antisocial families are unfortunately quite common. Of course, it depends at what degrees some of them manage to make children grow up sufficiently uh, fit for social life. But then at the end of the spectrum, you have children that are entirely destroyed and whose brain can only survive through getting addicted to control. And at that point, Drew, how do you fix it? I guess the first approach is to kind of invite people to to deal with the underlying issues. I believe both Sophie and Esme mentioned anxiety, which is something that is so often underneath the substance. But I see addiction being the secondary cycle. And in order to motivate people to deal with the primary cycle, so maybe the anxiety or the depression or the trauma underneath, we first need to, as clinicians, but as a general population, change our view on what addiction is. Because when people are uh, faced with shame and stigmatization and guilt, and criticism, they're very rarely going to leave the second cycle. They will more often than not never get to that first cycle until they deal with the addiction. So I think the first step is to invite people in a compassionate way, in a non-judgmental way, to explore the function of their addictive behavior, because that often tells how the substance helps them, often tells a lot about their problem underneath. 
Mm-hmm. You have all mentioned anxiety. That can present itself through control often. And I know you've written about this, Sophie. So again, I'm opening the floor to any of you to talk to me about addiction linked to control. And I might even pop in there at the word perfectionism or eating disorders or all of these things. They're all part of the bigger spectrum of trying to control one aspect of your life. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, it starts with loss of inner control. See, it is these emotions I was talking about that are pressing up. They want to be healed, but the anxiety presses down so that you don't feel them. It's like a pressure cooker, basically. The anxiety is the lid that comes on top of what's inside the pot that wants to come up. So you can imagine how pressuring that is. It's not only that, but it's also the feeling of being empty. Since you prevent yourself from expressing emotions on a regular basis, you end up feeling really empty. You have an inner sense of being out of control. As soon as an emotion comes up, you are totally destabilized. So you're going to do whatever you can not to put yourself in that state. And what's going to happen One of the easiest way is then to control the outside of life. Mm -hmm. And this is where substance comes in. This is where any kind of life activity has the potential of being addicted. Yeah, and you mentioned that, Esme, in fact, you can get addicted to work even or exercise or anything in our lives. Anything, really anything that at the onset has caused you some kind of pleasure, which at the beginning was a healthy pleasure, but very quickly transforms into some kind of perverted pleasure and torments you. And as we know, the more you're going to need to get the same effect afterwards. Mm -hmm. Your problem of perfection comes in in the sense that the more control can easily lead you into thinking, well, the day I control this thing perfectly, if it's a subject or if it's my love relationship or if it's sex or whatever, then I'm okay. So this is how it leads to addiction to perfection And also, this is the basis of obsessive-compulsive behavior. Oh, tell us more about that. Well, just think, if you want to do it perfectly, you're going to start to think about it all the time. So, for people who compulsively wash their hands, for instance, if they feel better after having washing their hands, that won't solve the underlying problem, but they will get some kind of release. And so... What are they going to do? As soon as they feel anxious, they're going to go wash their hands. And some people can wash their hands until the skin gets off the hands. It's, it's so cruel, so cruel. It is. But the way I'm thinking about this is that our bodies through many, many thousands of years have used all of this spectrum of physical activity, whatever addiction we want to kind of hang our hat on, as a coping mechanism for that underlying pain, trauma in our lives. But why hasn't the body found a way to deal with that trauma in itself in a healthier way? Oh, but there is a healthy way of dealing into it. But you need, most people need health. What's the healthy way? What's the healthy way is what do you do when you feel sad? Cry. That's right. (laughs) But also have somebody next to you if you're a child, because as human beings, we need a long time for attachment to feel safe. So we need to grow up 
in a safe environment. And safety and belonging is so important. And if you grow up in a very safe environment and you go to school, you're bullied, you're more likely to come back home and say something about the bullying because the bullying will seem out of order. But if you didn't grow up in a safe environment, you go to school and you're bullied, and these days it's worse of all, you're cyber bullied, and it continues, then you feel that, oh, right, this is what life is about. So what do I do to reduce this pain? I turn to, well, cutting myself, obsessive compulsive behavior. I turn to addictions, harmful addictions, so that I can quieten down the pain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And see, what you're not going to do, going back to my antisocial behavior, is you're not going to turn to your parent. Well, not the one who might not listen to you, of course. Yes. Exactly. Or you might turn to that parent in the hope that finally your parent will understand you and you'll get creamed once again. And so you perpetuate in the formatting of your brain that in close relationship, it can only hurt, which, by the way, is the basis of sadomasochism. Oh, everything is sort of linked somewhere. And can I interject quickly? Please do, Drew. To go back to your question, you said, you know, how do we treat addiction? And I think the primary thing, if we talk about emotions, is why do we have emotions? Why do we, all mammals share the same five basic emotions of happiness, sadness, anxiety, disgust, and anger? The reason we share those with a dog is because they fulfill needs. When we're happy, the first thing you want to do is share it. When you're sad, we need comfort. When you're anxious, we need security. Uh, when you're disgusted, you need to avoid something. And when you're angry, you need to be heard or understood. If people are stuck in the second cycle of addiction, where they numb their emotions with a substance or a behavior, then they're really not fulfilling their needs. My answer would be that to help people with substances by allowing them to connect with their true emotions, not judging them, let them be themselves, and then they will understand their needs after that. Except they might not know who they are if they've grown up from childhood without being able to formulate whatever that self is. I think as human beings, we have this intense need to belong. Mm -hmm. And when we, we're not met with this need to belong, to belong to a family, to belong to a school, to belong to a community, then we are shamed and we yes. then live this shame. The shame resides in us. And this is where often we turn to toxic substances and other ways of, of coping. And I think... Yes. I think treatment of trauma goes to understanding shame. Yeah, and I think with addiction as well, the shame is also something that, as you mentioned, prevents people from seeking treatment in the first place. And maybe the one point I'd like to make in relation to that is if anybody has a relative that suffers from diabetes, when they have an increase in symptoms, they get increased care. Mm. They would go to the doctor and they would get injections of insulin. And there's no shame attached to having a diabetes diagnosis. Whereas with addiction, it tends to be very different in that you get stigmatized and criticized. But from an empirical or from evidence-based, there's no difference between addiction or diabetes. They both contain a genetic vulnerability and they both can also come as a result of poor lifestyle choices. But the way that we as a society view them tends to be very different. So I guess in response to your question, I think we need to, again, change how we view addiction to mm -hmm. lessen the shame to allow people to, yeah, not hide 
because of stigma or fear of criticism. And to open up and to help one another and to talk about it, start having that conversation about addiction. So then moving on to really, once you can either detect it in yourself or you or somebody who knows you would like you to reach out for help, where should a person go, first of all, in Luxembourg? Well, that is a little bit the problem. Um, the youth centre, that's why um, Drew has a large experience of Luxembourgish people going to the youth centre. Because for English-speaking people, there's very little that even... Uh, mm. We've been questioning each other and, and there's very little that we know. So maybe there's really something to do at that level. Maybe we can talk to the Ministry of Health about it. Uh, Other than the AA groups that we know about. Right, so I was just going to talk about the AA groups. They do exist in Luxembourg for English-speaking people. They exist for alcoholic people, and they exist for children of alcoholics as well. There is a slight problem with AA is that it can be not appreciated by quite a few people because of what is thought about its spiritual dimension. So it has the reputation of being linked to religion, which really the basis is not, but can be felt that way. So sometimes people are turned off by AA. However, the 12-step program, as they call it, is a very efficient way of helping people, but probably slightly outdated and as Drew mentioned, needs maybe also the help of a clinical approach alongside the AA meetings. Mm -hmm. Again, like the eating disorders, I'm sure it takes a family of help from doctors to therapists to, in that case, dietitians. but you you need to find and source the right people. So if a person with a problem first went to their doctor, where should the doctor then turn? To what type of therapy? I do not take on people that are in advanced stages of addiction. And the reason is, as Drew was saying, is that first needs to be accessed that first primary level. That's my job. And so if you send someone who just cannot stop abusing the substance, there's nothing I can do until this person has worked enough on the anxiety, on the emptiness, that they start understanding why they need to start controlling themselves inside of them and rather than outside. So where should they go? Well, I think it would be a great thing if we had something like the youth center in Luxembourg. There's no reason why Luxembourg cannot have that type of institution. We have the money, we we have everything that would help these people. In my perspective, I do have a different view. And in my private practice, I do take people regardless of their addictive tendencies. Because often I find that by having a connection with somebody and feeling listened to and understood often goes a long way in helping them negotiate within themselves their addictive behavior. So my approach is not to be punitive or enforce that people stop their addictive behavior because the problem is that they can't. That is what an addiction is. It's a difficulty to stop. And it's because of how their brain changes throughout an addiction that they lose the parts that, or they, they lessen the control on the parts that allow us to inhibit behaviors. And they increase the power of the parts that govern the addictive behaviors. So the parts of our brain that want sex, drugs, and chocolate are powered up 
and the parts that want to delay having sex, drugs or chocolate are lessened. So my view is a bit different. I do agree with what Sophie said and that there's a need for maybe a holistic center in Luxembourg where people can work on their core issues, uh, their addictions, and also uh, underlying trauma at the same time, but also maybe with medical support and nurses as well. Very much like Drew was saying for diabetes, we have ongoing treatment. Yeah. Very much so for addiction too. So we were very grateful for those centres outside of Luxembourg. But when they come back, they need continued support. So this is why a centre, we are an international centre, Luxembourg, for business, for research, for education. Why not for mental health? Because we attract the best from the world. When they get sick, it's as if like we need to export them because we don't have enough resources here. When you mentioned attracting the best, which of course a lot of cities and top companies want to do, that makes me think about what makes them the best and that drive to work, mm. which could be viewed as an addiction to work. Mm. And there have been very, very high profile European centres in the news over the last few years for mental health reasons. And even though they have a lot of mental health practitioners within their organisations, it doesn't seem to help because the tendency within some of these businesses is to attract the alpha person that's say but what does the alpha person mean perhaps it's just somebody who is addicted to controlling their mm. behavior <laughs> so i'm quite sure there is a need for mental health both for adults but also at the younger ages then what can be done at school age group that's a critical question there is a french-speaking child therapist in luxembourg catherine verdier who is doing a tremendous amount of work on school harassment she's gone very far and actually has had once again it's kind of funny that in luxembourg with these uh, top people we don't have top help for when they start questioning their need to control their addiction. There again, she has had more success in France. She's gone to the Minister of Health in France, alerting that uh, what Esme was talking about, the pressure there is on children at school, and it starts very early on. It starts in primary on, you know, being the best and being proficient, performant, and then, of course, the, the cyber harassment of children. So she is very alarmed, and she is saying all over that we don't have what it takes. She is trying to bring in to Luxembourg a Finnish program, forget the name of it, but basically a Finnish a program that goes into the classroom and as early as primary teaches children what is fairness, what is empathy, also teaches relaxation and meditation, and also how to Raise your voice when something you think is not social. Here is my antisocial coming back. When something is not social, training the teachers as well so that something is done in that moment that not only the bullies win every time. Mm -hmm. We could spend a long time talking about educational systems and marking systems and how everybody's driven to be, um, well, work for the ego and get the best mark for themselves. But some of that's changing with teamwork and things, but uh, perhaps not quick enough. That's a completely other conversation. Yeah, I guess my final thought would be that if yourself or anybody within your environment uh, you feel suffers with an addiction, to maybe view them with soft eyes, view them with a compassionate heart and also try and support them and not be judgmental or critical. 
but that would be the first step in order to reduce that shame, which ultimately motivates people to seek help, which is what they need, of course. Thank you, Drew. Esme? I would think behind us all, there's that when we feel shame, there's that intense, painful feeling of not being worthy of love and belonging. And I think if we go to this, to a child, to an adult, and we are able to discuss what's happening, and we see behind the addiction that pain of not belonging, of not being worthy, I think we, like Drew is saying, with soft eyes, this is a first step. Mm-hmm. I love that phrase, soft eyes. And the final word to you, Sophie. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to have to go back to that interpersonal childhood trauma. We are now recognizing that interpersonal childhood trauma is at the basis of most personality disorders. We're going to have a new edition of the DSM, the Manual for Emotional Disease, International Manual. And for the first time, they're going to be including interpersonal childhood trauma as a diagnostic. It was not existing before, so there's a hope that because it will be widely recognized as a separate trauma, a particular trauma that happens to children, then we'll have better clinical treatments. And if we manage to treat the problems at the root, then we will see a decrease in the need for control behavior and addiction to control and to substances. At least it's my hope and it's in that direction that I work all the time. Thank you all so much for your time, for your expertise. Let's hope that we can look upon our friends, our family members with soft eyes, try not to be the anti-social parents as much as we possibly can be, or in fact just citizens of society and let's also work towards helping one another and perhaps leaning on the Ministry of Health. I know they're rather busy at the moment, but leaning on them to develop something like the Youth Centre at Maastricht, where so many people from Luxembourg have already gone to seek help. Thank you all so much for your time. Great.